0: Good evening everyone. Welcome to 4 Hamilton Place. My name's Keith Manns and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Aeronautical Society. I'd now like to hand over to the President of the Royal Aeronautical Society, Dr Mike Steedon, to introduce our speaker for this year's Sir Sidney Cam Lecture. Well thank you very much indeed uh, Keith. And um, Could I add my welcome uh, to you all? Here this evening, on this very, very hot day, but uh, my goodness me, isn't this the right place to be? Nice and cool. Um, I would like, uh, just before uh, I introduce um, Sir Christopher, to express my appreciation uh, to BAE Systems for their support uh, for this evening. Now, we share the celebration of the Sir Sydney CAM. Um, contribution to aircraft design um, in the UK with the RF on a biennial uh, basis. This time uh, it's our turn, and so it's not only really very appropriate, but it's also my very great pleasure to introduce to you this evening Air Chief Marshal Sir Christopher Moran, Commander in Chief, Air Command RAF, who will deliver this year's Sir Sidney Cam Lecture.
1: President of the Royal Aeronautical Society, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I am, of course, delighted to be able to uh, speak to you this evening, and it's been a particular honor for me to have been invited to become a fellow of this distinguished society, and it's been a great pleasure for me to be able to accept that that honour you've offered to me, so thank you for that. In speaking to you this evening, I hope to achieve, I think, two aims. Firstly, to honour the memory and recognise the huge contribution that Sir Sidney Cam made to British aircraft design and through that to support British air power. But secondly, I hope to talk to you about the context in which the Royal Air Force delivers air power in an uncertain world and how we respond to those challenges and how we plan to do so for the future. Now, I approach this subject having taken the helm as commander in chief Air Command almost three months ago, and I bring to it my experience as the Deputy Commander at Allied Joint Force Command over the past two years. It was a rare privilege for me to have the chance to sit at NATO's operational level of command and control for the ISAF mission in Afghanistan, a conflict which some are characterizing as a hybrid war and to which I shall return later. The mission is certainly the greatest professional challenge that I've faced to date. Now, I return back to the United Kingdom to interesting times, both operationally, financially, and politically. Operationally, I'm part of a generation that's now seen continuous operations since the first Gulf War some 19 years ago. And as we draw down the flag this year in Iraq, having completed our mission there, we turn our focus more and more now to support a successful outcome in Afghanistan. But there are other challenges in the world that I think lurk near the surface in the realm of conflict. Now, the UK and US experience in Iraq and Afghanistan brings about a discussion about the future nature of conflict. And so, to a degree, I think we find there's a battle of ideas that's occurring on both sides of the Atlantic. Financially, we all read daily about the state of the UK as well as the global economy. And I think it's not difficult to conclude that the MOD faces an enormously challenging period to not only gain control of the cost of our equipment programme, which has lots of challenges, as I'm sure many of you here will recognise, but also, I think, to live within more stringent means over the coming years. But finally, with a mandated election coming in the next year, the party returning to government is widely expected to conduct a defence review. And so these two themes, therefore, of the future nature of warfare and the size of the defence vote... I think, will shape such a defence review. So this evening, if I could, I'd like to expand further on the global context for defence and explore what this might mean and tell us about the evolving nature of warfare. I'd like to use, if I could, the lens of our operations in Afghanistan to highlight the role that British air power plays in contemporary operations before perhaps daring to stare into the crystal ball and talk about the future. I would like to stress that my aim tonight is to inform this learned audience, and not necessarily to strike further controversy in what's already, I think, a media-fueled debate. Now, to start by saying that we live in an uncertain world, I think, is something of an understatement. We can look back twenty years, this November, to the end of the Cold War, before the events in Berlin that brought down the wall. The security of the world was defined in terms of two monolithic powers: the United States and her allies. And the Soviet Union and hers. Now, in a somewhat perverse way, this gave the world a degree of certainty. It provided political impetus to contain any small wars, lest they escalate through miscalculation to a nuclear Armageddon. It reinforced the Westphalian model of states, and it assumed that sovereignty was to a degree sacrosanct, and therefore only an act of war could have triggered a military response. It was also an era of industrial-age warfare. Absolute numbers mattered. Military objects were relatively discreet and usually armoured or hardened. Unguided weapons of that era only had a very small probability of achieving their desired effect, and only a very small percentage could ever consider considered to be precision weapons. I think few would argue, therefore, that the end of the Cold War has reduced the risk of total war. But it has, however, lifted the lid on the wider spread of conflict, resulting in smaller and more complex conflicts. And I think this complexity is driven inevitably by two things, politics and resources. I think the political-related drivers are religious, for example, from people adopting extremist beliefs. They're ethnic and still to a degree ideological, perhaps in the case of North Korea. Now the resource-related drivers that we see are the potential mass movement of people seeking to sustain access to food production, water, etc., in the face of shifting global environmental effects. Allied to this is competition for energy and mineral wealth, to sustain growing economies and the expectation of their people. Here, one only has to think about the competition to monopolize European access to gas supplies, or the race to secure national rights to energy and mineral exploration and exploitation on the Arctic seabed. Now this complexity, I believe, is enabled by technology, which in turn has enabled globalization. The advent of microelectronics and the accessibility of industrial chemicals, coupled with knowledge disseminated through the Internet, has enabled individuals and groups of individuals to achieve military effects and behave in a manner that was once the preserve of states and their own forces. The level of warfare has come down from the state, primarily now, to the individual, as Admiral Art Sobrowski pointed out through his work on military transformation in the United States. These homemade explosives, coupled with detonators fashioned from consumer products such as mobile phones or intruder detection devices, can have potentially devastating consequences, as the Heathrow bombers in 2006 tried to achieve. The use of civil airliners, as in the 9-11 attacks, remind us of the potency of abused technology. Worse still could be the employment of weapons of mass effect, like a chemical, biological or dirty nuclear attack. The cyber world of the Internet connects individuals with ideas and information, and through this global dependency, it's exposed vulnerabilities in our security, our energy and our financial stability. It can, of course, be equally argued that a collective dependence on global markets has driven increased stability through a collective self-interest, and only bucked by perhaps a couple of rogue states. Now, Thomas Friedman, I think, illustrates this multipolar world in his excellent book, The World is Flat. Now, through technology, the complexity of a conflict, I think, is further amplified by the media, through mechanisms which we all witness daily. Now, all the foregoing can operate to sustain terrorism on a global scale and act as an accelerant to criminality. In weak states especially, these non-state actors can begin to flourish in so-called ungoverned spaces, on land, for example, in parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan, at sea, for example, the piracy off the coast of Somalia, and indeed in cyberspace. These groups or individuals, often sponsored by states for their own purposes, like Hezbollah, can act in state-like ways with political as well as military factions. So if the foregoing sort of broadly characterizes the contemporary security environment, what do I believe is the future nature of warfare. Well, there's no doubt that the United States possesses a clear superiority in conventional military capability, and although re-emergent, Russia still only spends a fraction of defense compared with that of the United States. Having said that, there's no doubt that the United States herself is severely stretched through her involvement of two major theaters of operation, and this is especially so for her land forces. Now, with a strong nuclear arsenal and the collective ability of our allies, I think there's only very low probability that we'll see a major conventional conflict between major states. Indeed, it's considered the risk of a territorial attack on the United Kingdom to be equally very low for the foreseeable future. So if, if the risk of a major conventional war is very low, what type is the most likely type of conflict that we could face in the next two decades, say? Well, here I believe is where the debate begins will conflict in the future be all about so-called irregular wars? That is, wars amongst the people, perhaps about the people, where there is a violent struggle amongst state and non-state actors for logis- legitimacy over the relevant population. Chechnya, Darfur, Sri Lanka, and perhaps the farther areas of Pakistan may be good examples of a regular war, along with perhaps recent conflicts in Lebanon, and indeed in Gaza. Now, insurgencies like the current challenge we face in Afghanistan, are seen to be a subset of irregular warfare. And here it is recognised that political, rather military, solutions are required. And this puts a premium on the comprehensive approach, and some argue, as well, boots on the ground. Now, given my comments on the increasing complexity of conflict, will all future conflicts be so-called hybrid wars? It's argued that future conflicts are likely to be characterised by an increased blurring across the range of adversaries we will face, and the methods that they will employ, especially to counter our perceived symmetrical strengths. States may respond in ways of non-state actors, i.e. use more asymmetric approaches, such as cyberspace. And non-state actors will begin to act like states, with state-like technologies, such as the UAVs that Hezbollah employed. And they also develop alternate government capabilities, such as hospitals, welfare care systems, I think these hard and soft levers of power will converge, so there'll be a strong emphasis on information operations and exploitation of cyberspace, for example. Now, the more moderate protagonists of hybrid war theory do not argue that state-on-state war is dead, but the deployed forces need to be as capable as fighting an insurgency as conducting high-end conventional warfare. Now, I think, again, we need to be cautious here about following fashion labels in warfare theory, of which there are many. And all wars could could be argued to have been hybrid in some way. But I think complexity and convergence of level of warfares is something we probably ought to acknowledge. So what about state-on-state conflict, then? Well, looking back on some of the complexities driving this global security context, I think there are still, still sufficient factors that draw states into potential conflict with each other. Residual, territorial Disputes loom large, such as in Taiwan, the Falkland Islands, and the influence of Russia over former Soviet countries like Georgia, Ukraine, and the Baltic states. Competition for energy and access to raw materials drives the potential for miscalculation and challenges our access to free markets. North Korea, Iran, potentially a failing Pakistan in the future, with or without an India dimension, I think, can all create a compelling narrative for conventional capability, all of which, in those scenarios, could have a nuclear aspect. Is there any evidence indeed to suggest that one type of conflict will be more prevalent in the coming decades? Certainly operational analysis of conflict over the last 60 years has found that randomness dominates and that exploitation or extrapolation of recent behaviours is a very poor guide to the future. There's also a danger here, I think, of a one-doctrine approach, either to define our area of operations, the time we require to conduct operations, or the enemies we will face. Before the First Gulf War, for example, it was famously stated in MOD that no British tanks would ever be required to operate outside of Europe, that a recent president stated that US troops would not be used for nation-building, or that we would always be first in and first out. Who would have predicted, for example, after World War II, that UK troops would face North Koreans, Argentinians or Egyptians in conflict? But we have. Now we try and define how we respond to these challenges in a declared and non-declared defence policy. However, what should the central aim of that defence policy be? Well, I think I can find no better uh, aim of defence policy than using the words of Lord Tedder when he addressed the House of Lords in 1953, during a defence white paper debate, and I quote, I repeat, our object is to secure peace, not by winning another war, but by preventing another war. In the first place, I suggest that military forces must be such as to constitute an effective deterrent. That is our primary objective. But they must also be such as to be able to fight a successful war if that deterrent fails. I think one... Therefore, must try and foresee what will be the future nature of war. I believe we would be making a fatal mistake, and I mean fatal, if we were to shape our forces on the basis that a war in the future would be on the same old lines as those of the last war. And I might add to Tedder's words, or perhaps indeed the current. So if the supreme aim of defence policy is to prevent war or crisis, building to a point that threatens our national interests... How do we then decide on a force structure? Well, of course, one fundamental constraint in all this is money. But this is nothing new. As Dennis Healy stated in 1967, the main purpose of a defence review is to bring defence expenditure into line with the nation's resources. Indeed, if you were to read any defence review over the past 60 years, the bottom line has always been what the country is willing to pay for the insurance that defence provides. So the question, I think, is ultimately about choice. Are we a player or are we neutral? Are we defensive or are we expeditionary? Are we isolationist? Are we multilateral? Are we a leader? Are we a follower? Do we have global aspirations or are we simply regional? And so on and so forth. So what might be drawn from the foregoing? Well, firstly, uh, I would have to begin by recognising fully that we don't start with a clean sheet of paper. In some significant areas, we've already made commitments. In policy and expenditure, these will have to be honoured, or indeed exploited. We are likely to stay engaged in a bloody and resilient insurgency, and we cannot afford to see strategic failure in Afghanistan. So for the short term, this endeavour requires our fullest efforts. I would subscribe, however, to a view that we cannot afford to be fighting in Afghanistan in the same manner in five years' time from now, that we are engaged in today. The mission there is likely to change, of course, and we're likely to be there probably for more than a decade. But our role by then should be predominantly one in support of the indigenous forces. Like the US, if our land forces are largely committed over this period, I think it will fall to air and naval forces to deter and, if necessary, strike any of the threats that emerge to threaten our national interests. Now in a post-Iraq-Afghanistan era, I believe our focus should return to the question of deterring war and conflict, which is against our national interest. And should this prevention fail, it's likely that the crisis will involve some proportion of irregular warfare, but that state-on-state conflict is still very possible. Prevention will require security and confidence-building activities in partnership with other government departments in key regions of the world. It will require a deterrence posture encompassing nuclear and conventional capability to deter and, if necessary, coerce potential adversarial actors. It will require judgment so that we are not overinsured for the premium that we can afford. It will require deployable forces able to operate across the full spectrum of conflict, probably at simultaneous levels if we accept the notion of hybrid-type concepts like Krulak's three-block war. Such forces operating by necessity in partnership with alliance and coalition nations, will be required for their deterrent value, as well as their ability to operate in complex battle space if they're required to deploy. So with clear financial constraint, we'll have to decide where we want to buy influence and at what scale we can afford. In doing so, I think, we can try and therefore balance our political ends with our financial means by employing military ways. Now, perhaps having set the sort of contemporary context... I'd like to move on to look at the relevance of air power in fighting irregular-type wars through the lens of our operations in Afghanistan. Now, I would argue that Afghanistan does not necessarily represent a hybrid conflict, as many elements of what might be within the envelope of this definition are missing. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I feel strongly that it best represents a challenging environment in which to deliver air power. And so I'd like to highlight to you how the Royal Air Force has been responding here. Now, as I outlined when I spoke in the Air Power Conference earlier this year, at the heart of the ISAF mission is a complex insurgency, and in common with all insurgencies, it's a political struggle for power which uses extreme violence to achieve its aims. And we can only consider it a success, therefore, when the political battle rather than military battle is won. Now, wisdom remains that we apply counterinsurgency tactics and procedures, or COIN. The doctrinal framework is the well-read U.S. manual on this, Field Manual 23.4. At the heart of the coin doctrine is the need to win the trust of the Afghan people, such that they believe that their long-term personal security will be better served through their elected government and appointed officials, supported by the international community. The effort needs to be focused on the people we are attempting to support. It's not simply focused on killing or capturing insurgents. Now, I'd like to say this is a really important point to stress. It requires that the Afghan government is trusted by its people to provide for their welfare and offers a more just and prosperous future than that offered by the insurgents. It's going to require the long-term support of the international community and particularly the the support of neighbouring states to help stem the flow of financial, material and human capital that helps energise the insurgents. It's going to require political and public support for the actions needed with a commitment also for the long haul if we are to coerce insurgents to believe that they cannot outlast us and convince ordinary Afghans that their lives will not be at stake for years to come. Now, I point out that this is a deliberately complex business, because it is. It's too simplified to see it as purely a military operation. To date, that might appear so, but other lines of operation of governance as well as reconstruction and development are equally important, and they all have to move forward together. Now, I think all these aspects are recognized in our own so-called comprehensive approach. And certainly the new U.S. approach to Afghanistan and the region clearly recognizes the need here for a political surge. Now, wrestling with this issue over the past two years, as I have, it's made me aware of the limitations of the military instrument in such situations. And coin operations, by their nature, are often very contradictory. We want to attack the insurgents, but not the people an act that can be an unintentional recruiting sergeant. Causing civilian casualties works against us, and I'll return to this topic later. We talk of deploying more forces, but at the same time we talk about transition and reconciliation, thereby potentially signaling an exit strategy. The more external forces, more external forces in country can shift a public perception over time to see us as occupying forces, particularly if our behavior doesn't match our rhetoric. So the answer to such an irregular-type conflict is not necessarily more foreign boots on the ground, although I think this remains vital in areas of very poor security. The more ground we clear in a shape-clear-hold-then-build strategy, the more ground we need to hold. So simply clearing ground without then holding it potentially takes us backwards, not forwards. This is why the fielding of effective Afghan security forces is so vital, to be in the lead of operations and ultimately to be that holding force on the ground. So what role does air power have to play in all this? Well, I think it's too easy to try and characterise all this as a land operation. From a joint perspective, I think such operations are inherently air-land operations, or even if you prefer, land-air operations. I could simply say that air power has made an enormous contribution, leave it at that. But I think that would miss the opportunity for me to portray the richness of how deeply air power is woven into the tapestry of the ISAF mission and indeed the part that Air Command has been playing. So what has been that air contribution? Well, looking firstly at air mobility, very obviously Afghanistan is a landlocked and mountainous country with limited overland access in which to support all of our logistic requirements. Now, while work is ongoing to expand the overland options, there are still very few ports of entry into Afghanistan and they all have significant risk and fragility behind them. So therefore, strategic air bridges are absolutely vital day-to-day and certainly would be the first resort in the face of any disruptions, say particularly through Pakistan. Now, there's been much effort within the command on improving and providing a more robust air bridge, and certainly the opening up of a second C-17-based airliner communication has provided us with increased capability in this area. I think you'd all recognize, therefore, that the timely delivery of our future strategic tanker aircraft, which of course is also a transport aircraft, is going to be vital to sustain this effort. Now, perhaps above the operational level of UK thinking is the need to promote the development of civil and military air power in Afghanistan. Developing airfields, civil air traffic control capacity, all this helps promote economic development and self-sustainability. I think it also helps promote government credentials, for example, supporting flights to Mecca for the Hajj. And an important part of the strategy as well is developing the Afghan National Army Air Corps. And this is so far as a role that the UK has only had a limited contribution to. But essential if we are going to pass the baton back to the Afghans for the medium term. And here I think in particular, the RAF could have an important role in training and educating this fledgling air force. Now, across the battle space of Afghanistan, the RAF contributes to airland operations to support the ISAF mission. Now, not, not all this effort is focused on UK forces in Helmand, but a large part is but this is still vital operational level activity if we're to achieve campaign level success across the whole of Afghanistan and not just in the UK sector. Now remaining, if I could, with the FEMA mobility, the RAF support helicopters and their crews are to be praised for both their professionalism and their bravery and our heavy medium lift and medium lift helicopters, I believe, provide a decisive advantage to ISAF forces. I think you've only got to witness the complexity and the risk of running significantly large ground convoy operations across Helmand to see the advantage offered by our tactical airlift. Certainly more support helicopters are needed in Afghanistan, and certainly the arrival of some new U.S. assets there will help, and we have some additional U.K. aircraft planned to deploy later this year, and I believe they'll make a very important contribution. But with distances between centres of population measured in hundreds, not tens, of miles across Afghanistan, then tactical fixed-wing transport aircraft, like the C-130, provide a special premium. Now, the work extends from hub-and-spoke flights from outside a the theatre when some of our trooping flights don't have the level of defensive aids needed to fly into theatre. And certainly they also provide a valuable service in the airdrop of supplies to remote outposts, therefore reducing the response time for resupply and further reducing the risk to our ground convoys. And I think there's certainly more that we can do here in the pursuit of precision airdrop of supplies. Now, the concept of control of the air, I believe, is just a valid concept in coin operations. And whilst perhaps we're not challenged by traditional ideas of air-to-air combat, the security of our aircraft in flight from, say, Sapphire and MANPADS, and the need to protect the vital ground around our air bases, I think is just a compelling need. At Kandahar and Sudabastian, Royal Air Force regiment squadrons, conduct essential patrols, to deter indirect fire attacks from rockets and the like, and they sweep vulnerable approaches used by our trooping aircraft to ensure there aren't people out there with small arms or manpads. Now, a successful insurgent attack here, as the Chief of Defence Staff has already rightly identified, can have a strategic consequence. So the work of the RAF regiment is every bit as challenging as elsewhere on the ground, and it's very much a hearts and minds campaign with the local people. Now, our contribution to intelligence and situational awareness, again, is a very exciting air power evolution in coin operations. Our Nimrod and other air platforms, with full motion video sensors, have been essential in theatre for some time. And maintaining such a capability, I think, is vital for the future. Our Reaper unmanned air vehicle has been a huge success story, and I'll return to that again in a few minutes. But fast jet ISR, that is, Intelligence, Surveillance and Reconnaissance too has got a very important role. The Harrier GR9 sniper targeting pod has not only proved to be a non-traditional ISR capability, but its important ability to downlink its picture to rover terminals and land forces on the ground has given a new meaning to network-enabled capability in the air-land environment. Now with Tornado GR4, now in theatre, and the Harriers in fact returned home today, the Lightning 3 pods on the GR4 will maintain this capability. But with Tornado also comes the Raptor uh, ISR pod. And many of you in this audience will be familiar with Raptor's capabilities, which I think will add a very vital and important surveillance tool for intelligence-led operations. Now, one of the most promising ISR capabilities at this time is our ASTOR system. The Sentinel aircraft, with its highly capable synthetic aperture radar, has deployed to theater already for a so-called operational rehearsal. Now, at the moment, as we build up the force... Numbers limit a sustained deployment for the time being, but the system provides what is called wide-area surveillance and has proved a hit with ground commanders because it cues attention to pattern-life activity on the ground and in advance of some of our tactical patrols. It's been proven in providing tactical GMTI, i.e. Ground Moving Target Indicator, in the counter-ambush role, and there are many other new ways to exploit its capabilities, including the real potential to contribute to the counter uh, improvised explosive device fight, uh, fight the so-called counter-IED. Now, above these three core air power roles, I think it's pretty easy to grasp how they're employed in coin operations. And there's no doubt that I believe that demand outstrips supply for all these capabilities. For example, less than 10% of ISAF's demand for GMTI, i.e. the type of capability provided by Aster, is fulfilled. Similarly, at the moment, only about 50% of the fixed-wing air transport and a similar percentage of full motion video requirement is being provided by Reaper and other UAVs. But a fast jet aircraft also make an essential contribution to ISAF operations. Now certainly while there are insufficient close air support aircraft to fulfil all of ISAF's pre-planned air support requests, there is excellent coordination to respond to immediate close air support requests when we have a troops in contact or tick situation and certainly average response times now to ticks are very impressive indeed. Harrier GR9s from Joint Force Harrier have done fantastic work for the last five years, and they and their families, I believe, are now ready for a well-deserved break. And if I could perhaps reflect for a moment, I'm sure that Sidney Cam would be proud, if not amazed, to discover that almost 50 years after his involvement in the P-1127, that the fundamentals of that Harrier design have stood not only the test of time, but delivered a winning capability in numerous operations. Now, some people may believe that other nations could provide British land forces with close air support. But I think such an idea is myopic, because as part of an alliance, we need to contribute in a balanced way, and we certainly get a great deal back. Moreover, I think we just cannot fight at simply the tactical level. Our RAF fast jets are equipped to respond 24-7 in almost all weathers. We've developed targeting pods and precision weapons that give the highest assurance of success. The non-kinetic effects of our aircraft on target have certainly been extremely well documented. The key message is that both our kinetic and non-kinetic air power effects delivered by a fast jet help maintain those close battles in an asymmetric condition, and that's in our favour. Our crews are trained during pre-deployment training, or PDT, to exemplary standards in partnership with UK and other allied Joint Tactical Air Controllers, known as JTACs. Their adherence to tactical directives to minimise civilian casualties, I think, is very widely reported. And quite simply put, we've developed an outstanding reputation for discrimination and care. And this all adds up to a level of assured support for UK troops that they expect, and in fact they deserve. I think as a nation, we must not make shortcuts in delivering this required capability. Well, so far, I think I've focused on the breadth of Air Power's contribution to coin operations. And whilst, of course, it would be tempting to stop the discussion on such a positive note, I think it would be wrong, of course, not to highlight some of the challenges. And I'd like to cover three that I feel are quite important. The first is the sensitive issue of civilian casualties. Now, as I've stated already, if we are to win the hearts and minds of the Afghan people, then we must focus on their security more than we appear to be focusing on our own. An act, which, an act which creates unacceptable levels of civilian casualties, I think, clearly works against this goal. It's now well accepted that by far the greatest number of civilian casualties are created by insurgent action. Now, the loss of any civilian life is, of course, a matter of very deep regret and hurts the campaign's progress. But some commentators, I think, are still too quick to try and apportion the blame for civilian casualties on the inappropriate use of air power and they often cite the lack of boots on the ground. Now, ISAF's taken this matter very seriously indeed, especially given the largely negative and disproportionate cover that any comments on the subject seem to make. Now, the detailed analysis has been undertaken over the last year has further corroborated statements that I've made in the past. The greatest proportion of civilian casualties attributed to ISAF are caused by direct fire incidents and escalations in the use of force at checkpoints and the light. Now enlightened commanders out on the ground understand this. An appropriate emphasis is now given on rules of engagement and clear communication of commanders' intent and improved interaction with local people. Airmen, of course, have a part to play, and we have played a part. Advanced targeting pods, data links with ground forces, enhanced JTAC training and guidance, along with the use of lower collateral damage weapons such as our new Paveway 4 bomb, or the laser brimstone weapon, all have had an effect. And I'd like to leave this point again by congratulating Joint Force Harrier on the sensitive way that they've applied their rules of engagement during their time in theatre. Again, another reason why assured support from UK fast jets is an essential component, I believe, of any irregular war force construct. Now, my second challenge is that the nature of coin operations begins to challenge the traditional air power maxim of centralised control and decentralised execution. Coin operations are often planned at quite low tactical levels, sometimes down at company level, but often at a battle group level. So if we are to influence tactical commanders' thinking, we must therefore have our air planners and liaison officers well forward, mentoring land planners and advising their fire support teams on air power effects. And that builds trust in the employment of air power through the professionals of our JTAX and through the responsiveness of our air support net. I think we must not endanger lives on the ground by waiting for so-called organic assets, when air power is often on hand as a first responder. At the operational level, I think air thinking is embraced in Commander ISAF's theatre-level plans. But I think what I might call air action is less intuitive at operational-level headquarters, like the ISAF headquarters. So I think our air experts need to break out from the comfort of our combined air operations centre and move forward to fill joint appointments in headquarters like Regional Command South, the ISAF headquarters, or indeed further back. I've certainly witnessed over the last two years that airmen's skills in planning and targeting are in great demand in the joint environment. And I believe that we are more effective when we embed air power effects, working more closely with key joint and land commanders, building trust with them and offering solutions to their problems. So this, I think, continues to put a premium on Royal Air Force personnel being war fighters first. Now, my final challenge is how air power can play a greater role in helping to counter the threat posed by improvised explosive devices. Insurgents have realized that they cannot challenge ISAF and the Afghan National Army by using conventional force-on-force tactics. They've shifted to a more asymmetric approach through the use of suicide bombers, but especially in the employment of IEDs, Now these improvised explosive devices continue to account for over 75% of all ISAF casualties of people both killed and maimed. Now pre-deployment training and good tactics, techniques and procedures in theatre do go a long way to counter this type of threat and certainly better protected mobility by having more armoured vehicles plays its part. But I think it's becoming accepted that we must engage these IED networks by more offensive action, not just simply by defensive action. Conducting action to the left of the bomb, so to speak. Now, certainly armed UAVs like Reaper uh, have had some very noticeable success in this area. And it does require a joint and multidisciplined approach. Wide area surveillance systems, like the Aster I've described, is probably part of the solution, along with SIGINT and HUMINT focus, to cue some other assets, such as other UAVs or perhaps special forces patrols. Change detection technology. Command wire detectors and all these sort of technologies, I think, all hold some potential. Now, I certainly am convinced there's more that air power can do in this area, and I've certainly already encouraged air command staff to apply their minds to what I think is a very critical contemporary issue. Now, looking at the clock, perhaps I need to start to wrap up by saying a few words on three success stories. Air land integration, REAPA, UAV, and also our expeditionary air group and wing concept. Now, within the framework of what we call Project Cunningham Keys, with the land and naval forces, many of you will be aware that we created a joint air-land organisation. Now, over the past five years or so, it's steadily worked to develop understanding, techniques, tactics and procedures, and where necessary, sponsor new equipment to ensure that air can support land operations as seamlessly as possible, but also that land formations understand and use the full capability of the air component. Now, I think this is vital if we are going to save lives and achieve operational success. I think air power effects need to be built into an operation at the outset, not just used as an afterthought. And as I mentioned earlier, air effects are planned into Commander ISAF's operational level plan. The integration of air at ISAF headquarters, I think, has matured now to the point where the Deputy Chief of Staff Joint Operations, which is a real pivotal post, is now a two-star airman. At Regional Command South, we have deployed air integration teams supporting the planning effort. And we've increased the capability of the air support organisation all round. But our efforts haven't just stopped out in theatre. We fully support the Army's pre-deployment training. Indeed, during Exercise Mountain Dragon, which I think one of these series of exercises finished only last week, we now conduct essential training for land fire support teams. And we conduct this in a state-of-the-art facility at the Air Battle Training Center at RAF Waddington. Now, this is a fully networked synthetic environment which allows the fire support teams and the fire planning cells to develop these common tactics, techniques, and procedures and conduct the tasking cycle by interacting with air crew and air battle managers in what is effectively a virtual helmet. And it's building this level of trust and confidence, not to mention the assurance and effectiveness generated by this team approach which convinces me why we need this nationally provided assured support. Now, another significant success story has been the introduction of our Reaper-armed UAV. I think procured and deployed with commendable speed, the Reaper provides a high-endurance platform with formidable ISR capability as well as firepower. We'll shortly be able to provide a full 24-hour orbit in Afghanistan, but we certainly have aspirations to buy more platforms and expand this to a three full orbits. Certainly on a recent visit I made to Kandahar, members of our special forces waxed lyrical to me in front of 2nd POS on the huge impact that Reaper has had on their efforts and were little prompting from me demanded some more. Now finally, I'd like to point to the success of our expeditionary air group and wing structure that we've deployed on to both Opheric and OpTelic. For too long, I think, we've simply defined air power as a bucket of airframes. Eight tornadoes. Six Chinook. I think this construct has failed to articulate the command and control and logistic elements that are essential for air operations. In the Cold War, all this was taken for granted in our fixed infrastructure that NATO provided. But as our forefathers in the Western Desert knew only too well, when you conduct deployed operations, the conceptual and moral components of air power all need to be addressed. And at Kandahar, at Bastion, Al-Udid and elsewhere, Our expeditionary air groups and wings play an essential part in commanding, planning and executing operations as well as providing essential liaison functions. So whatever next? Well, I hope over the last 35 minutes or so I've helped to convey to you the decisive impact that air power is having on our current operations and that I've helped to foster perhaps an improved understanding of why air power remains very relevant to coin operations and I think will remain relevant in so-called irregular wars in the future. Hybrid air power, therefore, if you like. You might well ask, whatever next then? And for the Royal Air Force in particular? Well, I think you'll be sensed, You'll have sensed by now, I hope, my clear belief that we need to fully put our shoulder behind the wheel in order to succeed in Afghanistan. In the short term, I believe this means readjusting our priorities and shifting resources towards this main effort. I think it also means grasping new roles, new technology, and innovating to meet some of these emerging challenges of irregular warfare. For the medium and longer term, however, I come back to the discussion where I started on what we want our armed forces to do in the broader context of defense. We cannot predict the future with any accuracy. So within the constraint of what our nation is willing to spend or can afford, we need to make policy choices and consider the scale of our efforts we need to deter, as well as being able to fight, if required. In the continuum of prevention, coercion, and if necessary, intervention, we need to have the best balance of forces available that can do all these things. So, of course, we have to be agile and adaptable. Now, this adaptability needs to be both physical and mental. I think we've got a good record in this regard, but we must ensure that we continue this theme in all our new platforms to demonstrate our wider utility. And I think this applies to our fast jets in particular. Now there are plenty of examples I think I could use to illustrate this point, but an excellent recent example is the Tornado GR4. Nineteen years ago it found itself in an offensive counter-air role, dropping JP-233 runway denial weapons and striking critical infrastructure in Iraq. Last week it conducted its first COIN mission in Afghanistan successfully strafing insurgents in contact with UK forces. Now mobility and ISTAR are fundamental enablers across the whole spectrum of conflict and our planned investments in this area probably look about right but maybe I think there's more to do. For the future I think we must continue to richen our ISTAR mixture as we need to develop our understanding of, of complexity as well as resolving the ambiguity of targets and I think this is going to be more challenging than striking them with our precision weapons. I think control of the air is still a fundamental requirement for joint manoeuvre. And as I've discussed, it's already become much more multifaceted. But there are some questions, I think, to resolve. The balance between operations and recuperating. The balance of platform numbers versus capability. And here, perhaps, the future mix of UAVs is part of this debate. The balance of live versus synthetic flying training the balance of investment in enabling capabilities such as network-enabled capability, which I think is an essential glue which helps us produce the precise and synchronizing, synchronized effects that we desire. And also, I think, recognizing the investment that's been already agreed in our fast-jet attack platforms, we need to continue to drive down the cost of delivering this sort of capability, building on a recent excellent record of lean support. But what is equally important for the future, I think, is to draw together previously discrete capabilities. Typhoon is no longer an air defense fighter, but an attack platform as well. I don't think this seems to be very well understood. Perhaps we need to explain ourselves better, or perhaps others might be more willing to listen. Joint combat aircraft will certainly take this approach further with its inherent I-Star reconnaissance capability and provide a much reduced cost of ownership. I think Typhoon 2 has the potential to deliver similar I-Star capability with an investment in an ESA radar. So this true multi-role approach gives utility as an excellent deterrent force, as well as being able to respond to the uncertainty of either irregular or regular crises in the future. I think whatever way you look at it again, this assured air power delivery by the Royal Air Force, I think is the right answer to support our armed forces in pursuit of a defense mission. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think I've covered quite a broad canvas quite quickly. I've reflected on the formulation of defence policy and the nature of warfare. I've drawn on the 90 years' experience of the Royal Air Force in adapting to the unpredictable nature of conflict and our more recent experience of operations following the engagement in the Middle East over the last 19 years. Agility, adaptability, and relevance I think remain core of our vision. Sydney Cam shaped aircraft design for most of the last century. I hope he will be proud of how we continue to shape air power for this. Mr. President, thank you very much indeed.